man named Jonathan Lehman recently wrote a book, and catch this title, The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. That's a provocative title. The Surprising Offense of God's Love. And he opens the book with this quote from John Lennon. All you need is love. Is is that true? Love is all you need. Is, is, it, is it true? I mean, it, it sounds good. It sounds right. Is it true? And, and the answer to that probably depends on what you mean by love. Does it not? Be, because, and this, this, may, this, this is, may come as a surprise, perhaps, not everybody means the same thing when they think of love. In fact, when the Bible uses the word love, it's not always using it in the same way. It's kind of love that the Father has for the Son. kind of love that God has for sinners. It's kind of love that sinners have for sin. We talk about how much we love good food. We talk about how we love our children when they split their chins open. Different We mean different things when I say, I have a deep love for my child when he's hurt, and when we say, I love chips and salsa. We mean different things when we talk about love. So it's really important to define our terms when we make statements like, all you need is love. Might be true, might not be true, just depends on what you mean. Well, I want to talk about God's love. I want to talk about God's love for sinners. I'm not attempting here to give a super strict definition, like from here on out, this is the only thing you should think of when you see the word love in the Bible. Your context is always going to help you determine how, how to understand this. But I want to give us a category that will help us understand what the Bible primarily is talking about when it refers to God's love for sinners. Because I suggest that we have a concept of God's love in our society that is not biblical. Just, it, it, it just, it's just an idea of love God's love for us that I want to challenge. So here's how I'm going to set it up. I'm going to set up what I think a a lot of people will tend to think of as the definition of the love of God. And and then I want to go to the Scripture and say, well, let's look at what the Scripture says and see if these things line up. I'm going to specifically challenge what I think is a misunderstanding, uh, one in particular. And this is it. This is it. God's love is primarily to be thought of as a celebration of us. So, here's here's what I'm suggesting. God's love is not 
primarily to be thought of as God's celebration of us. Okay? Wow, okay. So let, let, me, let me unpack that for you, tell you what I mean. Here's what I'm talking about. Many people, I think, if you just said, define love for me. They might say something like, love is making people feel good about themselves. I, I, I think that's probably what a lot of people think of when they say, I, I, I want to be a loving person, or I feel most loved when I am most validated by you. When I'm most, I'm most loved by you when you validate who I am and you, and you celebrate who I am. This is, a, this is a definition of love that I think probably starts with humanity. I mean, we, we just kind of ask the question, what, what, you know, what, what feels loving? We, and that's kind of our starting point. What, what feels the, like the most loving thing? Well, when, when I'm just unconditionally accepted. That feels loving. I like that. I want that. I, I think we start with some givens. We're just, we just kind of embrace. It's kind of a universal. It feels good. This feels loving. So let me unpack this. I'm loved when I'm validated. This kind of love is the kind of love where we are attempting to make each other feel supported, try to make each other feel important. We love one another by making one another feel appreciated. This is not too strange, I don't think. I think people would agree that this is not an odd definition of love. We, we want people to feel special. We want people to feel valuable. It's, it's validating. That's, that's this notion of love that I'm trying to articulate. Can you relate to this notion of love? I think it's what most people think of. I think it's probably what most people think of when they think of how to really love one another. It's free of criticism, of course. It's free of judgment. It's free of expectations. Validates, celebrates who a person is, for who they are, no expectations. And if you press this kind of love hard enough, therefore, and this is where this definition, you, you start to see it, it, it'll start to break down. It won't hold water very long because if you press it hard enough, you can no longer place any restrictions on anybody. It must unconditionally support. It has to support another's dreams. It has to support another person's goals. It has to support other people's decisions. In this view of love, if you're pressing it, if you're saying this is what is fundamental to love, if you press it in this definition of love, the great sin is hindering people from discovering, from expressing themselves. The great sin is preventing people from making decisions for themselves. The great sin is placing boundaries and restrictions and authorities. Boundaries, restrictions, and authorities turn into what? Prison bars. 
This is, this is a threat to my freedom. Uh, you, you can key in on that word. There's some deep desire in the heart. I just want to be free. You view restrictions as prison bars, not not a fence that keeps you from wandering into busy intersections. Got a fence in our backyard. It's got two gates. They latch shut. This view of love, this this will just kind of illustrate how we have to at some point say, you know what, I, I don't think this is love. At least not in its truest sense. We've got this fence. It, the, the gates latch. I can sit out on the back porch. I can let my children run free. I can read a book. I can run inside, grab a drink. I'm not too worried because the, the safety fence is there. But what if they desire to be free? We open up that gate. There is a certain view of love that says, don't tell me I can't go out of the gate. Boundaries, restrictions, authorities are prison bars for the person who is trying to preserve that sense of autonomy. This is the mentality, of course, that fueled the 60s cultural and sexual revolution. This is the rhetoric that drives abortion. And the problem with it in the United States of America. Yesterday was the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. It is most loving to not put boundaries on a woman and her decisions about her body. That's the rhetoric. Of course, that is one of the most vulgar and public manifestations of this view of love. More often than not, it's more subtle than that. More often than not, this view of love is just simply a subtle desire to make people feel good about themselves or to feel good about our own selves. I want to be loved in a way that just validates who I am. And many people are on the hunt for that kind of love. I just want someone to affirm me. It's hard to find in a lot of ways. And so, when we don't find it from others, to the extent that we're satisfied with it, well-meaning Christians will say something like, this is what God offers to you. God wants to provide you with the affirmation that you have always failed to receive. This is a view of love that starts with us and then we take it to the Bible. We want to find it there as well. And many people go to God for that kind of love. Because we're told, Jesus Christ will love you like nobody else will love you. And that's true. But what we hear, if this is our paradigm, 
is Jesus Christ will validate and celebrate you like nobody else will validate and celebrate you. Because we've already we've come to the scripture with a predetermined concept of what love is. So, when we are in our time of need, when we are in our time of brokenness, and we know we need something from God, what do we do? What's the strategy when we come to God to receive the love from God? We come to the Scripture, and where do we go? We go to the places where the Scripture affirms how very special we are. That's, that's what we're looking for. You all know what's coming to my mind, possibly. Psalm 139.14, here's where we go. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We, we might, in those times, however, fail to read the first three words of that verse. Does anybody know what they are? I praise you. The psalmist's intention there is not to turn us into belly gazers. There are a a few places you can go to in the Scripture where where God is, is going to affirm That we are precious in His sight. But, but never to get our eyes to focus on our preciousness. Is that what you need most? When you go to the Scripture to get a sense of how special God thinks you are, is that, is that, what, you, is that what your heart needs most? And this is really the big question. Is that what the Bible normally means when it speaks of God's love for humanity? When when I hear that God loves me like no one else will love me, should my mind race to the thought of how special God thinks that I am? Is that where we should go when we think of the, the love of God? Is the craving to feel important this is just I, I'm just I'm just trying to challenge some of the things that we that, that are assumptions that are givens. Is the craving to feel important something that we as a Christian community should say? You know what? That's a that's just a natural given. Should we just assume that that's a holy desire? Is it a holy desire? And I would suggest that at least more often than not. The desire to be validated, the desire to be celebrated is an idolatrous desire to be praised. More often than not. There there are times where the desire for affirmation is probably a healthy thing. For example, you have a, a wife who wants her husband to think that she's beautiful. That's not an that's not a, an unholy desire. It's not necessarily an unholy desire. But should that turn into a craving that rules her heart? No. 
does the craving to be praised for her beauty rule the hearts of many, many women? Oh yeah, it does. It rules the heart of many women. Or how about a child? Okay, you've got a child who hits his first home run. Your son hits his first home run. And he's rounding the bases, catches a glimpse of his dad. He's just standing there like this. My, my first home run was a grand slam. Opposite field, right field. It's 11, 10, or 12 years old, maybe. My dad went crazy. <laughs> what if dad doesn't go crazy? What if dad just blows it off? And that son is discouraged. Is there something wrong with that? Probably not. Probably, probably nothing wrong with that. But should the desire for affirmation from dad rule his heart all his life long? No. It's a natural desire, in the words of David Pallison, that has gone monstrous. And does the craving for fatherly affirmation produce bitterness in the hearts of many children and adults towards their parents? Oh yeah. The craving for fatherly affirmation. So perhaps, yes, there is a type of desire for affirmation that is holy. But most of the time, the desire to be validated, the desire to be have some sense of being special, some sense to be affirmed, has turned into a craving that has become a driving passion, or perhaps even the driving passion of a person's life. I want to be important. I want to be important. I'm searching for importance. I'm searching for some sense of being affirmed and special. And it is so easy to have a passion to be praised. And many people, Christians, many Christians come to God with a passion to be praised. And we're told that that's exactly what He offers because He loves us. And we've defined love as He celebrates you. So, the relationship is fueled by an idolatrous craving to be praised or even worshipped by God. But we come thinking that's what He's offering to us because He loves us. And we've misdefined Love, and in reality, what what we find so wonderful about him is that he thinks I'm wonderful. It's all it's all built on a misunderstanding. I'm going to argue misunderstanding of what the love of God is. How do we define the love of God? So, just to recap, God's love is not primarily a celebration of us. I'm arguing. God's agenda is not to cause us to focus upon and make us feel good about ourselves. That's not His primary agenda in His love for us. It's not the truest definition of the love of God. Let me give you a different definition of the love of God and then we'll try to unpack it from 1 John. God's love is not primarily a celebration of us. It is... 
primarily a gracious gift to us. Not primarily a celebration of us, primarily a gracious gift to us. Let me unpack it from 1 John. If you have your Bible, please open it. It's just uh, it's good to set your eyes on the text. I want you to see it for yourself. And I'm going to actually back up to verse 7. Let me read this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. It goes like this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is love. How do you, okay, what does that mean? I, I, I think maybe in my own mind or maybe just from, from hearing other people talk about this, it, it's, it's easy to think of this, God is love, as kind of like God just smiles all the time. Or he's got like above the door of, of the, uh, above the throne is written something like, it's all good. I'm just, I'm love. It's all good. But, you know, I don't know. I don't think that's what it means. Verse 9 says, In this, the love of God was made manifest. Okay, so God is love. Now let's look at how it was made manifest. Where it could be translated to reveal. Okay, the, the revelation of the love of God. Here it is. So three things I want to say about the love of God. And the first is this. God's love is generous. God's love is generous. It, it, it gives. It's a giving love. It's a generous love. Look with me at verse 9. Anyone who does not love... I'm sorry, verse 9. In this... The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world. And then verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son sending. It's the sending of the unique Son of God. He sends Him to us. It's a, it's a giving of something to us. Now, if we turn that into a commentary. This, this, is, this, is, this is easy to do. I don't know where I've come across this for sure. I think in my own head. But it, it's easy to, to flip that into, well, this is a commentary on my worth. Like God is out looking over. The... There's Jeremy. Uh, Jesus. Go get him. The, the, if we turn it into a commentary on worth, I think we get off on the wrong foot. This mentality of like, you're so valuable that God would give Jesus to get Jeremy. 
It's, it's, it's just, it, it's, the, it's the wrong way to, to think about it. Like, like this is a fair trade or something. There's a, there's a problem with this because as soon as you start talking about value, if it becomes a value issue, you start taking away the notion of generosity. Let me illustrate. You've got a million dollars in solid gold. And you go to uh, the Palisades Mall, to that, you know, we buy gold stand. Or wherever you go to turn in a million dollars of gold. You, so you, you're carrying it in in, in, a, in a big bag. Big bag. And you give it to them, and you leave it there, and you walk home with a million bucks. Nobody is going to say, either to the guy at the stand or to me when I walk home, walk in the door, nobody's going to say, wow, that was really generous. It's a fair trade. Generosity is not in the picture. When we start making the sending of the Son of God an issue of our value, you, stop, you start taking the notion of generosity out of the picture. So let me, let, let me just suggest this. Let's not allow the generosity of God at Calvary to turn into a discussion about our worthiness. It just gets us off on the wrong foot. Let it be generous. Let it be a giving. Let it be a sending from the generous heart of God. Now this ties into my second point about this passage, which is that God's love is gracious. God's love is gracious. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. To be the propitiation for our sins. To be, what the NIV translated, the atoning sacrifice. The one who absorbs Wrath, we could say. Jesus, the Son of God, is sent to clean up a mess He didn't make. The, our, our sin is, is, is a mess. We're in need of utter rescue. Our main problem is not, oh my goodness, they haven't been validated. The love of God is not trying to resolve that problem. Oh my goodness, they, they, don't, they don't feel good about themselves. They don't feel special. Let me, let me race to, to go validate and, and repair that problem. That's not what's going on. The problem, the problem is that our sin has offended a holy God in His wrath. His judgment is measured and fierce and pointed right at us. And the Father sends His Son to go bear it on His own shoulders. It's gracious. It's not an issue of value. It's not a, a, an issue of worthiness. God sent Jesus to bear wrath. If we have to talk about ourselves, 
in this situation, it's not pretty. In the words of Alfred Poyer, the cross has criticized and judged me more intensely, deeply, pervasively, and truly than anyone else ever could. God's love for us has something to say about us, but it's not pretty. It has something to say also about Him. And that's wondrous. He is gracious to us. God's love is primarily a gracious gift to us. Not a celebration of us. That's not the primary thing that should be in the mind. The third thing that we should say about the love of God is that God's goal is our good. Notice the purpose. Notice the motive behind what God is doing in the manifestation of His love. Notice the motive in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that, here's the motive, we might live through Him. It is a generous gift. It is a gracious gift. And the purpose of the work is so that we get life. That's what he's after. He wants you to have life. That's what's motivating him. I want them to have life. I don't want them to die. I don't want the judgment to fall on them. I don't want condemnation to land on them. I want them to live. He doesn't want us to be consumed in wrath. He wants life. That's what he's after. The love of God is focused in on giving life where there is no possibility for life. That's what he's after. That's what's motivating life. He wants us to live with Him forever and be in His presence and enjoy knowing Him and worshiping Him. God knows the joy that He can give to you. He knows He made you. He's like a watchmaker. He, he knows how you tick. He, he made your heart just in such a way so that when you see Him, know Him, and love Him, you are happy. That's what He wants for you. He wants life for you. That's what his, his heart is beating for you to have life, to know Him, to love Him, to worship Him, to enjoy Him. That's what you're made for. He wants you to have it. That's what He's after. And it's not because we deserve to live. It's not because we're so incredible or so special. That's not what's driving it. It's because He is so kind and gracious and merciful and giving and good. And in the context of those kinds of words, mercy, grace, goodness, then we can understand it's because He's so loving. That's the context for understanding what love is. And there's something about it that should leave us in 
wonder. Something about the love of God that's not fitting, not right. It leaves you thinking that, that something about that that just doesn't. This, this, why? And when you're at that point, you're starting to understand the reality of the love of God. Because it's at that point that you start grasping, whoa, wait a second. This is a total gift. And you know what that does in the heart? It doesn't make you feel great about yourself. It makes you amazed at who God is. And that's what He's after. The love of God makes you a worshiper of God. The love of God makes you amazed with the love of God. It makes you forget about... You, 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 you're not even in the picture. It's, uh, forget about me. I'm amazed at who you are. Somebody sat down with Amy and I one time. We were doing a Bible, she was doing a Bible study, and husband and wife said, hey, can we talk about this next chapter in the Bible study? They're going through a book. And they sat us down, and there was a section in the book that talked about, who's kind of talking about these kinds of things. You're this, pre- you're this precious, that's why Jesus... Did the, it just focused on the preciousness. And my response was, well, what about John 3.16? God so loved the world, right? And the answer is, you know what's amazing about John 3.16? Not me. The love of God is amazing. It's the love of God. That's what tr- truly understanding the love of God brings about, is an amazement with God. That's what he's after. In fact, we might even say it this way. God's love for you is not so much his celebration of you, but the gift of enabling you to celebrate him. That's what you're made for. That's where your heart comes alive, is when you're worshiping. That's what he wants. He wants you to worship him because that's where you are happiest. That's what he wants for you. With this definition of love, you, we start in a different place. We don't start with what seems natural to us and then go to God and impose our idea of love on him. This view of love says we start with God We start with what the love of God is. And now, what are the implications for how we ought to love one another? That's exactly where John goes. Read with me verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Okay, now we have a new definition of love with regards to how we're going to love one another now. Which means two things, I think, in light of what we've just looked at. Two things with regards to how we're going to love one another. First is this. Our love for one another must supremely be 
the unswerving desire and commitment to one another's good. I want your good. You want my good. Which means ultimately, of course, I want you to worship God. Because that's what's best for you. It's where you're going to be happiest. The most loving thing I can possibly do is want you to be worshiping God. It's the most loving thing you can do for me is to have a desire for me to be worshiping God because that's what my heart's made for. That's the best thing for me. It's the best thing for all of us. It means that I want what's best for you even if it costs me something. I want what's best for you even if it costs me something. If it costs me money or time or late nights or early mornings. My, see, because I'm not, I'm not more devoted to making you feel good about yourself than I am devoted to, I just want what's best for you. I can't afford to do that with my kids. I can't afford to have love primarily be, primarily be, I just want you to feel good about yourself. Oh, I want what's good for you. I know you don't want to be in the backyard right now. But sweetie, I'm locking that gate. Because I love you. I want what's best for you. Husbands, want what's best for your wives. Wives, want what's best for your husbands. Want what's best for your kids. Want what's best for one another. Regardless of what it costs. It also means that uh, I want what's best for you even if you are not particularly lovable at any given moment. And you want what's best for me if I'm not particularly lovable at any given moment. And, and you see what this definition of love does is it removes the requirement that people be worthy of our care. Just, it just removes that from the picture. It enables us to love our enemies because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Isn't it? It just, remo- it just removes that from the picture altogether. Praise God. You see love happening when we stop loving people who are only lovable. <laughs> your marriage will change. The way you treat your, your co-workers will change. The way you treat the dork in front of you who is sitting at a green light will change. It's not particularly lovable at that moment or worthy of a, oh, you'll see it in just a second. Out of the way. If God's love for us is the model of how we should love for one another, of how we should love one another, then it means we're supremely devoted to the other person's good. The second thing is, uh, the, the second implication of this kind of love is that it means that we value care for one another over comfort for one another. This is, this is doctor's office theology, right? I go into Stan's office. If I, you know, don't make me feel good about myself. Tell me about my teeth. Do I, do I, need, do I need some help here? That's, you know, a good doctor, of course, is going to care more about your well-being than about you, you know, having a, a high view of yourself when you leave. 
Well, that's how we should love each other. We can't afford to believe that love says, I affirm your dreams, I affirm your desires, I affirm your decisions, no matter what. We, we can't afford to do that. That's not loving. Requires a different definition of love, though, doesn't it? To care for people in that way. We can't afford to believe that love says, boundaries are prison bars. We can't believe that. We can't afford to believe that love says, I'm okay, you're okay. I want what's best for you, even if you don't want what's best for you. We want what's best for one another, even if we don't want what's best for ourselves. I'm I'm committed to helping you, even if you don't want help. That's what a church body does. We care about each other's relationship with Christ because we love one another and we know that the best thing for one another is for this relationship to be as solid as possible. Which has implications for how we do church. All of this is preparation for our, the continuation of our sermon series in 1 Corinthians where we'll now start talking about church discipline. If you have the right view of love, we can see that church discipline is a loving thing. So we'll talk about that. But as we as we close, don't you bow your heads with me? I'll go ahead and invite the worship team up. You know, us to take a couple minutes to be asking ourselves what what is what is God speaking to you this morning? How is God speaking to you this morning? Hmm. This evening. What what is what is Jesus trying to to show you? You know, have you have you made the love of God primarily into a celebration of who you are? Is that what you're looking for when you draw near to the Lord? And instead of basking in the grace of Jesus, you spend most of your time focused on yourself. Or maybe you've been validating things in another person's life, thinking that you're doing the loving thing, when in reality what they really need from you is to come alongside them, challenge them to live more faithfully or genuinely for the Lord. Maybe you're withholding love from somebody who is not particularly lovable at this point. Where's the Lord meeting you this morning? Where is he speaking to you? Just take a minute to, to pray through that and respond to the Lord. Don't let these things, don't, do, do not, let's be not merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Let's not look into the mirror and then go away and forget what we look like. Take a minute to respond.